You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Another lighter than expected inflation reading, but is it enough for the Fed to change course? The Wall Street Journal hinting maybe not. And which Fed course will keep the bulls in charge? NASDAQ 20% off the lows now. We will debate. Plus, we have more on the rise and the risks of single stock leveraged ETFs. Former NASDAQ CEO Bob Greifeld is here with his take. And Rivian, Toast, and Poshmark are all on deck with results. We've got the key things to watch and how to position on all three of those stocks. That's today's earnings exchange. But first, we begin with the markets, and Dom Chu has our numbers. All right, so the numbers are rally mode, Kelly, but modest compared to what happened yesterday. Now, the inflation data yesterday, obviously a big catalyst for what happened with the rally. Today's inflation data, still impressive, but not driving things as much. The Dow Industrial is up about 200 points, very responsive. At the highs of the session, I'll point out we were up roughly 342 points there at the lows, still up 125 points. Gives you an idea of the trading range so far. So tilt it a little bit more towards that kind of middle part of that range. So 33,503 for the Dow, 4232 for the S&P 500, up one half of 1%. And the laggard here is the Nasdaq Composite, up 22 points, 12,878 the last trade there. The Nasdaq is important because we saw a lot of big movement in the stocks that matter the most to market cap weighted indices like the Composite and like the S&P 500. Anywhere from 2 to 6% gains for the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Mata Platforms, just to name a few. Today, you're seeing a little bit more of that kind of stability or even pullback. Apple is currently just up fractionally. Fractional losses for Microsoft, Amazon. Tesla's down by 1% and a quarter percent gain for Meta Platforms after a big move higher yesterday. So a little bit more of a wait and see, even despite the inflation data we saw this morning. And then the stock that you want to focus on today, the talk of the town right now has to be Disney. It is the single biggest point contributor to what's happening with the gain in the Dow right now. I mentioned 200 points to the upside. Roughly 40 to 50 of those points at any given moment here are tied just to Disney stock after that big earnings report that beat profit expectations, beat revenue expectations, showed growth in their streaming business. And of course, that new ad supported tier coming up, a price increase going on there. So Disney media side of things, I'll point out, Kelly, July 14th was the 52 week low for this stock. It is now up 32% since that low. Now, again, I'm showing you this in context because even with that, we've still shaved a third of its value off the kind of company here in the market cap, but still Disney, a near-term rally. We'll see if it continues. I'll send things back over to you. Huge, huge story of the day, Dom. Thank you very much. Now to the question on everybody's mind, are the new inflation numbers enough for the Fed to pivot away from major rate hikes this year? Let's bring in Steve Leesman with some answers. Steve? Hey, good afternoon, Kelly. We haven't had any direct comments from Fed folks uh, since the PPI number this morning, but officials were not nearly as enthusiastic about that better than expected consumer price report as the markets were. Yeah, they were heartened to see the inflation rate declining, but they didn't suggest it would hold them back from hiking. Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. Neil Kaskari said, this doesn't change my rate path at all. He still was expecting a 3.9% funds rate in 22, all the way up to 4.4%. Next year, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans, he was similarly nonplussed. He backed a 375 to 4% rate, and he's one of the doves, and that's by the end of 2023. Both bank presidents leaning against the market pricing for rate cuts next year. That is after the Fed hits a 3.6% peak rate. They're sort of in line, market and the Fed, on that peak rate there. Kashkari said the Fed was more likely to hike and hold rather than hike and cut. Now, 
There was one positive factor in the PPI report this morning. We learned that wholesale inflation up the pipeline is falling faster. For example, crude or unrefined products taking, taking out energy were down 3% month to month. That compares to goods for final demand closer to the consumer on the pipeline. They were up 0.2%. So at best, the CPI and the PPI could begin the counting for the Fed towards the test of clear and convincing evidence that inflation is falling. It's a conclusion markets look already to have made, but Fed officials, Kelly, almost certainly have not. And what does it mean for 50 versus 75 next time and 25 versus 50 in the meetings there on out? And I don't know if we're still pricing in possible cuts in early next year. Yeah, we are. Uh, if, you, if, if guys in the back would bring that, that, that Fed rate outlook uh, chart back up, you'll see uh, that, that it still comes down. And that's where the disagreement is. Not a lot of disagreement up through the end of 2022, getting to that 35 3.6% rate. That's not where the disagreement is. It's those cuts at the end that, uh, that the Fed is really leaning against, getting down to 315 by December 2023. Kashkari Evans saying we're probably more likely to, to hike and hold than we are to, uh, to, than they are to cut. They don't want to, Brent Daly also said that, you'll remember, Kelly, she said, look, we're not going to go up just to start to coming, come down. Possibility, you'll remember your history, 94, 95, the Fed hiked pretty strongly and then came back and tweaked the rates on the back end a little bit. But, but the 315 built in there is speaking of more than a tweak. This is where the market is, is either pricing in its recession or a very strong contraction of growth at the Fed. Uh, just won't acknowledge to this point. And was that tweak in the in the very near term, Steve, or was that the later on the rate cuts in like 97, 98 that time? Later right? on, later on. John, and, and John Williams, by the way, in, a, in an interview I did with him not too long ago, he said that is a possibility. He's the one who noted that historical analogy there of what the Fed did in 95. It wouldn't be you know, the Fed. Uh, uh, it's possible to get to a place and then maybe wants to lower things a little bit. You remember 2018, 2019, the Fed did a bunch of hikes, came back and undid them. So it's not without precedent. True. It's just uh, what you have, Kelly, is a problem here of the jawboning, right, which is the Fed doesn't want to let on that next year it might do something uh, uh, that would ease financial conditions, less those financial conditions ease now, which is the opposite of what it wants. <laughs> exactly. Steve, thank you very, very much. We appreciate it. Our Steve Leesman with that recap. In the meantime, we had that 30-year bond auction top of the hour. Looks like it didn't go quite as well as yesterday's 10-year. Let's bring in Rick Santelli with those results. Rick? Yeah, a very strange auction, Kelly. The grade I gave it was a C as in Charlie. The yield at the Dutch auction, 3.106. And therein lies the problem. The when issue market, high yield prior to the results was 3.10. It tailed badly. And that really is where all the uh, negatives came in with regard to the average grade because some of the metrics were pretty good. Uh, it, bid to cover was a smidge below average. Indirects and directs were slightly above average. What caught my eye was dealers. Dealers took 10.8% of the auction. Well, the 10 auction average is 16%. And if you dismiss the most recent auction where we basically had a right around the same amount, 10%, it is the second best going back at least 20 years, which means that second best, the dealers took a little and investors took a lot. So if you're thinking about this in macro terms, because we're all wondering who's going to 
replace the Fed when they're done buying, as they supposedly are now, although their balance sheet isn't shrinking. Well, investors, and they seem ready to step up, they just weren't very aggressive today, Kelly. And they'll have to get more aggressive in the months to come as that QT pace accelerates. Rick, thank you very much, our Rick Santelli. All right, remember that discussion we were having yesterday about the productivity crash? Both Steve Leisman, MCAM's Michael Darda were saying they're hopeful it's just a statistical quirk. And my next guest insists that productivity is not as bad as it appears right now and that we could even see a golden era for productivity ahead. For more, let's welcome in Barry Knapp. He's managing partner and director of research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Barry, I don't want to say this is all about whether people get to keep working from home, but it definitely there's a lot of people following this with great interest. Right. Well, I, productivity was picking up late last cycle, primarily in the service sector, um, one of the best examples of that is Starbucks, who had really seen their comparable store sales stall out in round about 2015 and <clears throat> decided, well, if we invest a bunch of money in our app, we can get customers to buy the coffee and skip the whole line and queuing process and got a third of their customers to do that. So we had this acceleration in the way goods and services are delivered. The pandemic accelerated that, in my view. The problem that is going on right now, in particular with the productivity statistics, is the same problem we have with the way we calculate GDP. Productivity is, of course, a residual between the total output, GDP, and the hours worked. <clears throat> it was the way you would reconcile those two, two things. GDP is a mess. I've long preferred gross domestic income. Mm -hmm. Income is what matters, right? The household and corporate sector, that's what drives investment that ultimately boosts productivity over time. But gross domestic income was positive in the first quarter. Productivity estimated using the income method rather than the expenditure method was positive as well. And it looks like income was also positive in the second quarter. And by the way, well, just for, for people following along with this, there, there's been kind of this recent debate over which you know, remember, we used to use GNP. People will remember back from decades ago as GNP. Then we moved to GDP. Maybe we need to move to GDI, gross domestic income. Uh, but the point being now especially that that is painting a healthier picture. And even the Fed has talked about it, you know, that maybe that's captured. So do you think this is just a delay or a, or a measuring effect? I mean, is part of this as well the idea that wages have gone up so much and that's affecting the way that these variables look right now? Well, cor corporate income is going up sharply as well. We know we had 10% earnings growth for the Russell 3000, even with a drag from dollar effects, which wouldn't impact GDI because it's domestic income. So we know income is, is increasingly strongly. So anyone who looks back on the first half and says we were in recession, we were in recession because we had a surge in imports as supply chains cleared. And then we had a reduction in inventory investment coming off the biggest drawdown in inventories relative to GDP we'd had since 1949 back in 2020. That's not a recession to me when income, nominal income growth is still 10 percent and real is at least two. So Do you think, Barry, and this is again gets to the heart of this whole discussion. So if income has been surging and wages are up and, and we know all of that, is that going to have a lagged delay and show up and, and more inflation in the months ahead. You know, we're all celebrating the drop in CPI and celebrating the drop in PPI. But I wonder if everything you're talking about means co companies are going to be passing this, this on in terms of more cost, uh, price hikes. Well, what I, I really think it means, Kelly, is that, you know, what you were talking about with Steve with respect to the rate cuts in 2023 that I, in fact, in his last survey, I actually have rate hikes penciled in 
in the back half of last year. I can't believe I'm agreeing with Neil Kashkari first time <laughs> in a while. But that notwithstanding, I think what happened was the market, the policy rate got to two and a half percent, which is where it peaked in 18. There were two extenuating circumstances in 18. One is the Tax Cuts and Job Act slowed housing because of the limitation of salt. The second is because of the trade war sent global manufacturing and trade into recession. So right. we didn't really hit the speed limit for the economy. But when we got there, most people assumed any further rate hikes would have to be reversed. I don't think that's true. I think we could go to four and the economy would still be fine okay. at that level of a policy rate. So, so final then conclusion for investors who might listen to this and go, you know, I, I appreciate this. Uh, this jibes more with maybe their own experience of the economy. What does it mean for the market? I mean, where? what does it mean in terms of what investors should do here? Right. Well, <clears throat> listen, our, our expectation was we'd have a very difficult first half, and then we would reach not the Fed policy pivot, but the point of maximum tightening expectations. That happened in June. You were talking about 94, 95. That happened in November 95, when the Fed surprised the market with 75 basis point rate hike, the markets took off. The Fed didn't pivot till June. So we've done that, right? And so as inflation falls from here down to four, the markets are going to respond really favorably. I think we could reverse the entire first half losses. Hmm. But next year, inflation is going to get stuck around four is my expectation. So those rate cuts in 2023, I think, are, are a pretty good fade. And from a sector perspective, I think this is a higher inflationary environment we're going to be in this regime. I think growth is going to be stronger than most people think. So I still don't like, you know, those long duration tech stocks. I like the cyclicals. I All like right. financials, industrials, materials, and energy. That is fascinating. Barry, thank you. I think we did a lot there in a short period of time. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much. All right, Kel. Barry Knapp, Ironsides Macro. Shares the New York Times are moving higher. Activist investor Value Act just reported a nearly 7% stake in the company. They are now the second largest shareholder, and NYT shares are up more than 10% right now to almost $35 a share. Value Act has held uh, talks at the Times on a range of issues from board composition to deal making and operations. Uh, we've reached out to the New York Times to let you know when we hear more. But uh, again, a company with an extremely solid track record, even in terms of names like Adobe and Microsoft now setting their sights elsewhere on a much smaller cap stock. Uh, but at the same time that we've looked at Elon Musk, whether or not he's going after Twitter this year, uh, here's a major investor getting involved with another major media platform. Coming up, the House is set to vote on the Inflation Reduction Act tomorrow, and the bill has some big implications for certain companies' bottom lines. We'll tell you who's most at risk next. Plus, Rivian, Toast, and Poshmark are all set to report after the bell, and they're all down at least 50% over the past year, but have seen huge bounces in the past month. Can they keep up the momentum? That's ahead in Earnings Exchange. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back to The Exchange. U.S. companies are bracing for a big tax hit next year with the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill calling for a 15 percent minimum tax on companies with more than a billion dollars in profits. It could impact everyone from Amazon and Tesla to Moderna, AMD, NVIDIA and even Zoom Video. Joining me now with the breakdown is Chris Zenek. He's chief investment strategist at Wolf Research. It's great to have you back, Chris. And who what's the distinction here between who's likely to be most affected? Yeah. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me again. Um, in terms of who's most affected, um, they're focused on companies that are paying low cash taxes, perhaps because their stock price has appreciated a lot over the last three to five years, and they have big stock comp deductions that are reducing their taxable income. They might have a lot of amortization from acquisitions or be doing transfer pricing, which makes their global cash tax rate really low. Um, and you see it in some industries and, and, and not in others. One last important change they removed last weekend was to allow still tax depreciation in calculating your adjusted net income. And that ended up allowing a lot of heavy capital intensive businesses like utilities um, and industrials to not be impacted by this. Right. I saw the manufacturing lobbies were coming out hard against it, saying, you know, be careful of the implications here. What do you think the impact is going to be on the way these companies do business in the next either in the next couple months or next couple of years? Yeah. So there, there's, you know, over the very near term, there's not a lot you can change in terms of how you structure your organization and, and, and do your businesses. Um, over the intermediate term, some of these companies might invest more in the U.S. because the bill specifically excludes tax depreciation. So maybe you build more factories here or you do more production here that allows you to not be caught up by this minimum tax. So I think that's one of the, the underlying sort of you know wish things as lawmakers drafted this was maybe to get more people to invest here um, because you'd be scoped out of that if you invest a lot of money here. And that's the reason for your low cash tax rate. Does it make you want to avoid these companies as an investor because they'll be less productive as a result? I think you have to be careful over the near term because I think companies are going to come out and start to give information on it and investor and it's going to impact their cash flow and maybe what they can do with some of that cash flow. And so I don't think you want to, you know, I think you want to be careful because there's there's news flow risk over the near term. And then longer term, I think you know, we have to see what these companies are, are going to do to maybe mitigate it or, or it could be a positive or it could be a negative. Overall, is it a bigger or smaller impact than maybe people had feared or expected? Smaller impact. Um, the, the teeth of the bill from a tax perspective came to be less of something when they removed the depreciation provisions. But again, it's going to impact a lot of companies differently. Yeah. And we showed that list. Chris, thanks for joining us to walk through it. Appreciate Thanks for it. Having me. Chris Zenek with Wolf Research. Still ahead, shares of Vacasa surging, absolutely surging, by the way, up 33% now, and that's off the highs. They raised full year guidance. The stock is down 60%. This was a SPAC in December. We'll hear exclusively from the CEO on what's driving this rebound in demand. Plus, Bob Greifeld, now the chairman of Virtue Financial. He joins us to break down a new class of ETFs hitting Wall Street. We'll look at the risks and get his thoughts on the health of the market. Welcome back to The Exchange. Second day in a row of a strong session here. Dow was up 342. We're 100 points off the highs. Still up two-thirds of a percent, consistent with the S&P today, back up to 4238. And the Nasdaq 
adding a third of a percent. But the real highlight is that we're now 20 percent off the recent lows, although also still below those November highs. Here are some of the movers this hour. Dillard's having its best day since May. Beat analyst expectations on the top and bottom line. There's a good gauge of the middle income consumer, 17 percent surge. Uh, meanwhile, the stock has taken investors for a ride over the past year, but it's still up about 60 percent. A couple of other earnings movers to show you as well. Six Flags and Sonos, both having their worst days ever after their disappointing results. Look at these shares. Six Flags down 21 percent. They saw a 22 percent drop in attendance. Sonos cut its full year forecast. Those shares are down 25 percent. And despite all the noise around the passage of the CHIPS Act, the SMH ETF is about to snap a five-week winning streak. It's longest since uh, November. Remember, we had this week NVIDIA warning of a slowdown on Monday, Micron then following suit on Tuesday. We're going to have a closer look at the space next hour with the CEO of OnSemi coming up on Power Lunch. Very much looking forward to that. Again, a 1% drop this week for the SMH, at least as of today. Still ahead, it's all about charging and thrifting in today's earnings exchange. Rivian Toast and Poshmark on deck with results. All up big quarter to date with Rivian gaining 50%. The key things to watch on all three next. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's time for a pre-revenue startup version in Earnings Exchange. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Rivian, Toast, and Poshmark, all three set to report after the bell today. Let's start with Rivian. The shares of the electric car maker have nearly doubled in the past three months, but are still nearly 80% off those 179 all-time highs. The street will be watching their production ramp closely. Phil Lebeau has the whole story for us today, and Boris Schlossberg has trades on all three of these names for us. Welcome to you both. Uh, Phil, we'll start with you. What do you watching? It's the production level. That's what everybody's going to be focused on, Kelly. And we know what the production was in the first quarter and the second quarter. And as you look at the increase in production cadence, the question becomes, will they change the production guidance for full year? And the expectation is 25,000 vehicles. That's their current guidance. Do they raise that? Because you talk with people in the industry, talk, I've talked with a number of people who work closely with Rivian, and they say, look, they're getting their sea legs in terms of production. So that's what people are going to be focused on. And during the conference call, how much confidence does RJ Scringe have about the supply chain? So that's really going to be the primary focus uh, of the earnings when they come after the bell. Boris, what do you think about the, the stock? Yeah, as usual with EVs, it's not a matter of demand. They have 90,000 organic orders, 100,000 orders from Amazon. It's really, as Phil was saying, a matter of supply. Can they beat that 25,000 uh, number, production number? Can they come out of supply chain hell? Um, I would say right now, I would not want to, stock's been rallying ahead of the news, but I would not want to take a position in it until they sort of confirm that number because they do confirm, I think there's just much more in the stock to go as speculation will really ramp up. The stock, the product itself has been very well reviewed, tremendous amount of demand for it. If they can just get the production going, I think it has a lot of potential to the upside, but I would wait until they actually confirm they can do it. Phil, what else should we be watching for and what are the stakes here for Rivian? Well, what's happening with reservations? The interesting thing that's happening right now is that with the IRA EV incentives that are scheduled to go into effect once the president signs the bill, whether that's early next week, whenever it might be, the current EV incentives, which Rivian buyers qualify for, 
they go away. So Rivian has sent out a note to all of the reservation holders, basically saying, lock in your deposit and everything today so you can get that incentive, even though you're not going to take delivery of this vehicle until well down the road. I'll be curious what they say today about how many people have said, yeah, I want that 7,500 because once the IRA EV incentives go into place, a lot of people who are ordering an R1T will not be able to get that incentive because it's too expensive. It's above the 80,000 price point. Okay, so it's the price point. I wasn't sure if it was the sourcing requirements because I've actually seen a number of people saying those are so strict that a lot of these existing EVs may not may not qualify. Now, this one is strictly about the, about the price point more than anything else. Very few people get a base model. And if you're looking at the R1T at a base model, yeah, it'll qualify. But that's not how people order vehicles nowadays. Right. The average transaction price, I think, is going to be over 90000 on an R1T, at least for the foreseeable future. Wow, fascinating. Again, Rivian shares up another 4.5% into this print as well. Boris, were you going to say something? Right. I was going to say, I wonder if it's really going to matter if that kind of a customer, the $90,000 buyer customer, certainly is going to be motivated by the tax rebate, but it's not going to be his primary reason. It's the fact that Rivian has two models that I think are very, very attractive to the suburban buyer, which is the SUV and the pickup truck. And I think that's really the key thing that's driving the demand here. It's been well reviewed. and I think people want that electric vehicle experience within the format that they really like. All right. All right, there you have it. And Phil, thank you very much, our Phil LaBelle. We'll turn now to shares of Toast, the $10 billion fintech company, up 10% this week, but still 75% off the highs. They provide hardware and software, you might have experienced it, to restaurants for everything from ordering to payroll. And with more than 60,000 locations using tech, this could also be a barometer for investor sentiment on cloud and the consumer. Dom Chu has more of the story for us. Dom? All right, so Kelly, Toast shares have been toast, I guess is the best way to put it, since their public debut last September. So as we come close to its one-year anniversary as a public company, what many consumers call an unbelievable product that totally enhances that dining out experience has yet to really captivate the eyes or stomachs of investors, for that matter. Toast is still, by the way, not a profitable company. Estimates right now are for it to post a loss of 12 cents a share on revenues of $651 million, so good revenues there. It has only had three prior earnings reports on the books, and it was down big in the first two of them. That stock fell 18% back in November of last year post earnings. It fell another 18% in February of this year. And then it rose a modest, relatively speaking, 5% in May on the heels of earnings. This time around, the option market maybe is no surprise, implying a 15% move up or down in that stock after the report. Uh, Shares have managed to rally, by the way, over 50%, as you can see in the chart, off the lows that we saw back in May. And Toast is a stock that is maybe, of course, owned by Kathy Wood in her ARK Invest FinTech Innovation Fund. So there are some reasons to be bullish. Let's see if anything it says can lead to a more sustained upside for a stock that was hot out of the gate, Kelly, fizzled pretty quickly, but was trying to find a, at least try to catch some life here in the last several months. All right, Boris, if investors jump in now, they're going to get burned? I guess the lesson here is not to self, don't name your company Toast unless you expect to beat investor expectations every quarter, right? <laughs> um, no, they, uh, I, I, you know, I think they are a pass, in my opinion, at this point. They really haven't shown the kind of uh, growth uh, on the margins that investors really, really want. Um, there's a lot of competition in this space. 
and some of their products are not as competitive as some of the other uh, companies out there, especially their payment processing product. It's a great idea. The, the single vertical to the restaurant business where I spent a lot of my misspent youth is, is a great <laughs> idea. But as far as them being able to execute it at this point, I think it's, um, it's, it's an open question. Also, invest, uh, insiders selling stock. There's a million reasons why they sell stock, but it's never a sign of confidence for me. So I prefer to pass at this All point. All right. I love using it you know, to pay. But again, a good product is not always a great investment. Let's turn now, guys both of you to shares of Poshmark, which are up 11% this week, so similar story, and 40% higher in the past three months. Actually, a little bit of a recession play here. People betting consumers might pivot to less expensive secondhand clothing, but we're still talking about a 60% drop from the highs, and it's never once posted stronger than expected guidance, Dom. <laughs> you, you named them all right there. I mean, Poshmark is another one of those stocks, right? Hot out of the gate, and then a longer trend lower since going public back in January of 21. The online platform for buying and selling used clothing, fashion accessories, best seen a nice, nice move as you point off the lows, uh, up that 42% since mid-May. Maybe some of it was that way for consumers looking for gently used clothing to fight the effects of inflation across the retail spectrum. But this is a stock that will not be for the faint of heart when it comes to trading activity. The earnings are forecast to be a loss of 27 cents per share revenues 87 million bucks now over the last four quarters that stock has been up 24 percent up three percent but then down 29 and then down 17 percent so the options market is already predicting a move of up or down 17 percent this time around but as you point out it's been the forward guidance that has really been disappointing for investors revenue forecasts have seemed to fall short every single time that's six of them by the way this is also by the way a high short interest stock so you can't count them out a lot of people betting against it that could add more fuel to that volatility flame, Kelly. That's something to watch here as well. All right. Which side do you come down on here, Boris? So, again, um, Dom is right. There's a lot of short interest, so it could certainly pop on, on better than expected news. But I still think their execution problems are a really, really big problem for them. They're basically still a site to sell used sweaters, and they have to figure out how to do a much better job marketing. The other thing I think that's a, that's a big problem a lot of people have pointed out is they really try to market to buyers. But if you're a marketplace, what you really want to do is make yourself a very conducive place to sellers uh, and create a lot more sophisticated tools for sellers, which is something they've kind of refused to do so far. And uh, their, big, their whole big argument is they can do this through um, through data mining and you know sell, sell, uh, buying information. But if they can't attract a really, really deep amount of buyers, it's going to be hard to see how they go forward. The other big interesting pro problem here is that the IRS has now ruled that anytime you sell more than $600 worth of goods, they're going to have to issue you a 1099. Hmm. Now, most of their sellers are, are certainly going to you know come underneath that that uh, threshold. But if they do, I wonder if that's going to be a big problem. Not because you know it's not a big problem as far as paying taxes, but it's just a big problem doing paperwork sure. and I wonder how many sellers are going to balk at that you know so I think there's there's enough issues here on the board to make me want to st stand down for the time being all right Boris thanks for all your thoughts today we greatly appreciate it Boris Schlossberg Dom thank you as well we'll see you soon our Dom Chu coming up a CNBC investigation finds that some crypto influencers get paid thousands to hype risky investments but in some cases the projects they're promoting are merely fraud that story is next on the exchange
Welcome back. If they score enough followers, social media platforms can become a major money-making opportunity for influencers in the crypto space. A CNBC investigation finds that some online personalities get paid thousands of dollars to endorse crypto projects. But in some cases, regulators say these influencers are merely promoting fraud. And the amateur investors who pour their savings into these dubious ventures end up paying the price. Eamon Javers has the story. The latest digital currencies. If there were ever a time to start paying attention to the altcoin market, it is right now. The newest metaverse projects. An upcoming metaverse casino. Are all being hyped on platforms like YouTube. I could generate passive income every single month. The people promoting these ventures, dubbed crypto influencers, are racking up views by peddling projects, promising skyrocketing profits. But as amateur now, investors flock to social platforms for the next big thing... As many of you know, I'm officially a partner with Distex. Our investigation found some of these promotions have left investors financially devastated, while some influencers cash in. Welcome to BitBoy Crypto. Ben Armstrong is one of the most watched crypto influencers on YouTube. In the fall of 2020, you promoted Distex, calling it your most trusted coin, down 99%, valued at less than a penny now. Do you take any responsibility for uh, the losses suffered by your viewers when they see a recommendation by you, they go out and buy that stuff and it craters? Well, yeah, I mean, of course I do. I mean, I do feel, I, I hate it when we talked about stuff that didn't do well. I mean, Bitcoin was still kind of 50-50 at that point, it seemed. With nearly 1.5 million YouTube subscribers. I've got a lot to say about a lot of stuff. And more than 800,000 followers on Twitter, which has allowed him to earn more than $30,000 for a single YouTube endorsement. I could easily, you know, make over 100K a month doing that. That kind of money has encouraged other crypto influencers to swarm this lucrative market. This spring, an anonymous blockchain sleuth posted a list on Twitter naming 44 YouTube crypto personalities and their prices for paid promotions. We reached out to these influencers to verify their fees. Some said these prices were inflated. Those willing to share their pricing said they made a minimum of $1,000 for each promotional video. And unlike Armstrong, some promoters don't disclose they're getting handsomely paid to plug projects. Not disclosing, I mean, that's a surefire way to get yourself in big trouble. Joe Rotunda, the director of the Enforcement Division of the Texas State Securities Board, says he's seen paid promotions that are not only non-disclosed, but push fraudulent ventures. We're seeing scams. We're seeing frauds. There's a lot more out there. Rotunda and a team of regulators recently filed enforcement actions against two metaverse casinos for trying to defraud retail investors by selling unregistered securities. The order says one of the influencers was recruiting promoters to engage and pay him to advertise their products through his YouTube channel. Rotunda also found messages on a popular chat platform that said another influencer brought in a lot of investors from their videos. We uncovered this by seeing a promotion on uh, YouTube. A influencer who publishes videos at a very rapid pace um, uses hyperbole in the titles. And these are scary, right? But because it's so early, you have no idea what's real and what's not real. That's exactly right. When there's money to be made, people will do anything to make money. Taylor Monahan, the product lead of the popular digital currency wallet called MetaMask, says she's also wary of these YouTube personalities. I would urge anyone, even if they consider themselves legitimate, to not form these sort of these faux partnerships, any sort of like paying for influence, paying for replies, 
paying for followers. 19,670 coins. That's a realization Armstrong came to when he stopped producing sponsored content in January. It's been a lot of like a burden off of me because I don't have to worry about dealing with any of these people and I can just say what I want to say. It's a good way to build your business, but you just have to do it in an honest way. Now, Armstrong says because he felt guilty for heavily promoting Distex, the coin that later crashed, he used the money he made from the paid promotion to refund viewers who had invested in the project. Now, the total crypto market cap is down 49% year to date. And in that bear market, Armstrong says he expects the less legitimate crypto influencers will face increased scrutiny. And a lot of them are just simply going to ghost their subscribers. We reached out to the two influencers we showed here who promoted the metaverse casinos that were accused of defrauding investors about whether they have taken undisclosed payments for promotion. The influencer known as Flozin said he wasn't paid to promote the Metaverse Casino, but deleted his promotional video after we started asking questions. The Dream Green Show did not respond to our request for comment, Kelly. I would have to imagine they would be required to disclose this in the future, right? Well, if it's a security, you can be required to disclose it. But a lot of this is in a regulatory uncertain zone here. So we don't know exactly who has authority to regulate all of this. Uh, as of right now, it's sort of up to the individual YouTuber to decide what their ethical practices are going to be and whether they're going to disclose those to their viewers. And I got to tell you, I went down to BitBoy's headquarters in Atlanta, uh, and he has a pretty elaborate YouTube setup there, a big set, a big operation, a company that produces uh, YouTube videos on a whole host of topics in addition to crypto. Uh, they're in a former jacuzzi uh, sales floor location just outside of Atlanta, and, and there's, a, there's a cottage industry of this. Uh, and how that's all going to get sorted out is still to be determined. Well, you've done great work highlighting all the shadowy things that are happening here and, and how it's affected people. Eamon, thanks for this latest installment. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. All right, Eamon Javers. Still ahead, Virtue Financial Chairman, former NASDAQ CEO Bob Greifeld joins us with his take on single stock ETFs and whether the SEC is already behind the regulatory curve there. The exchange will be right back. The first single stock ETFs in the U.S. launched last month with dozens more potentially on the way. The ETFs will give investors a chance to make leveraged or inverse bets on the daily performance of individual stocks. And while the products are already attracting plenty of volume, they're also attracting a lot of scrutiny. SEC Commissioner Carolyn Crenshaw warning that they may pose an even greater risk to investors and the market than regular leveraged and inverse funds. Let's bring in Bob Greifeld now. He is chairman of Virtue Financial, the former chairman and CEO of NASDAQ, and a CNBC contributor. He's also author of Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at the NASDAQ. Bob, thank you so much and welcome. I'm trying to decide as, uh, you know, in terms of change, which side of this change you, you come down on. Well, Kelly One, thanks for having me today. So first thing I would try to do is put it in, in context. So these types of products have been available through the private wealth channel for many years, right? Every time I talk to a private wealth manager, he's pitching a product like this. So what's impressive here is you made this type of technology, this product more accessible, right, to regular retail and professional investors. So that brings up some concern, which we'll talk about. But I also want to put it in context, right? So we have equities on one side of the continuum where you're owning a share of an asset. You have options on the other side where at the end of the day, if your options expired worthless, you have nothing. So when you look at these products, they're closer to equities than to options, but they clearly have 
the leverage aspects of options. But to the extent your bet is not right, you still have a claim on an underlying asset. So when I think about this, go ahead, Kelly. Well, I was going to say, and, and, and as we just kind of keep going back and forth on this, we spoke about this yesterday, had some sharp warnings uh, from a num- number of other investors about it. Some said, is it possible that these products are safer, for instance, because they don't involve margin? You're kind of, you know, staring your, it's more obvious what your loss or what your exposure might be. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. But I think they get safer when you have education associated with it. When you look at, I've been around a while, uh, you have retail participation in the options marketplace in the United States like no other market on the planet. And part of that has been that you had great education over the decades, the exchanges and brokers. I remember Bill Brodsky and Sandy Fuchsia were out there, you know, really pushing the education aspect of options. And now it's a known quantity. So clearly we have exchanges, we have brokers who are in a position to educate about these new products. And the success or failure of them will be determined of how informed the investors are on the products. Certainly, if you're just buying this kind of thing willy-nilly, you should not do it, right? It has a higher risk profile than an equity, which has a risk profile, a lower risk profile than an options. You have to understand where it fits in that continuum. The big concern that has been flagged is this daily fix and the fact that people, you know, if you're involved in the product for one day, that's one thing. But, you know, that beyond that, uh, good luck trying to figure out, you know, what the returns are going to be. I mean, are these products meant to be for people who are only going to be in and out of them during one single trading session? You know, it's hard for you and I to envision every investor's needs for the product. So this product will meet a need. Uh, but I will harp back on, you have to understand the daily fix, you have to understand the product, right? If you're going to put your hard-earned money to work in this type of product, it really should be incumbent upon you and also your advisor to educate you about what this product is about, pros and cons, right? To me, this product represents some degree of innovation. As I've said, I've seen these products for the last 15 years coming from private wealth channels. There's nothing new about them. Some of the products I've purchased, they work, others didn't but you have to know what's underlying that. So the education aspect of that is critical, right? right. And the brokers, the exchanges are in a position to provide that, that education. It's certainly not for everybody. And even if it's for somebody, it's not for that somebody all the time, but we'll have a, a niche to play. My guess is most people will probably learn the hard way through experience and be that as it may. It just seems like an odd message for the SEC to be sending. Why go ahead and greenlight something like this while at the same time being so careful and obsessed about, you know, crypto and, and sort of the regulatory. It, it just it doesn't I don't I could understand if it was someone with the philo- with the philosophy of people should learn the hard way. But this seems to be a, an SEC that's been much more determined to keep people uh, from unavo- unnecessary losses. I, I would agree with that. And certainly some of their actions you, you can question or you can applaud depending where you are. But I think you also have to take it in context. I'm speaking for myself here, right? When you look at the options world today where options can expire worthless, so it's really then a bet, right, uh, one way or the other, and this product has more of the attributes of the underlying equity, I think then it gets harder for the SEC to say this is something they can't approve because then that would – coming to call the whole options complex, which has obviously served investors right. very well uh, for all the years. Uh, I repeat myself again, uh, you know, it's the fine print. It's the thing we click through uh, as we're on the web. 
but this is important, and I think the uh, the brokers exchanges can do a good job uh, over a period of time of educating on the pros and cons. There's certainly some pros to it, uh, and obviously you can be victimized if you don't understand the product or if you're taking this product yeah. in in a context where you really should not. All right. Bob Greifel, vote of confidence in the educational process. <laughs> we really yeah. appreciate your time today. Thank you My so pleasure. much. We appreciate it. Now with Virtu Financial. Still ahead, pent-up vacation demand boosting Vacasa's top and bottom lines last quarter. Shares are surging. We've got details from the CEO right after this. Welcome back. Before we go, check out shares of Vacasa surging 34% today after blowout earnings. Our Seema Modi spoke with the CEO and has more on what's behind the results. Seema? And Kelly, it's not just the rebound in travel. Vacasa CEO Matt Roberts says the softness in the economy, that's pushing more owners to rent out their home. That's more of a challenged economic condition. People are more interested in earning income to offset costs. And we also may gain incremental availability by people offering more nights for us to rent out. And that's good news for Vacasa. It is in the business of managing rental properties from fixing toilets to getting your homes booked. They say the overall cost of staying at a home is making it more attractive than a hotel. We're less expensive than hotels. People can eat in versus dine out. So strong bookings in July for Vacasa, which does account for about 40 to 50 percent of its business. That allowed the company to turn a surprise profit in the quarter. The stock is surging today, but still down about 50 percent this year. Its competitors, Airbnb, Expedia, also sitting on significant losses this year, despite outperforming the past four to five weeks. Hotels, interestingly enough, Marriott, Hotel, Hilton, have held up better than the home rental stocks as tourists rush back to big cities. And that's, of course, where the hotels have a bigger footprint than the rentals, Kelly. But it's because people want more income. They're giving them more room nights. That's so interesting, Seema. Yeah, one of the names that perhaps could outperform in this environment, if we start to see more softening in the economy, people looking for an additional income, and they say, you know what, we have that second home, let's rent it out. So we'll have to see if that helps the cost. And also the other online travel operators, the challenge is on now to uh, to beef up their inventory, Kelly. Uh, absolutely, and maybe these homeowners will help. Seema, thank you very much for bringing that to us, our Seema Modi. It's not just Vacasa either seeing a boost today. We're going to trade the other vacation name that has analysts hiking their earnings. Outlooks coming up on Power Lunch, which starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.